Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening, Rod. Here we are. I think, what, what episode we're on now? I don't know, we were a bit vague last week, so do you want to clarify? I think we said the episode number a couple of times last week and got it completely wrong, didn't we? I think we said we were episode... 42? 42, 44, but yeah. we're actually on episode 46 this week because we hadn't updated the show notes again. So apologies to everybody out there, we got the, sh- the show number wrong. So today is episode 46 and it is the 5th of December. Whereas last week I think we said it was 44 and I don't even know if we got the date right. So apologies, but definitely 46, we've done 46 weeks of podcasting. That's, we're just so settled into it now, it's like every week is new, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, there is that, there is that. You thought we'd have more of a pitter-patter by now, I guess. I guess so, but no, it's all good, I think. It's it's going quite well. I think we find something interesting to talk about most weeks, some more than others perhaps, but uh, yeah, it's, it's rolling along quite the thing. Yeah, I, I still maintain it's eerily quiet for the tech industry at the moment. It's not a surprise, you know, global recession, cost of living crises, people can't afford these kinds of things. There's in the background, I see lots of enterprise stuff gradually going up in price. I saw a thing today about Microsoft increasing their client access licenses in India and things like that. So, uh, you know, I think in the background, there's a lot going on, but none of it's interesting enough for consumer tech. I also wonder whether there's any merit in the supply chain issues of the pandemic and software development and all of that that side of the pandemic is now actually bearing fruit, whereas a lot of things that have been released over the last 18 months were already in the hopper and well on their way. They may have been delayed, but I wonder now if we're, we've reached the end of it. It's kind of the same with films, isn't it? There haven't actually been that many blockbuster films out in the last year or so. Like, the, right, must go to the cinema, see this film with the children or, or with your other half or whatever it may be. You know what I mean? It's, it's Everything seems a bit sparse. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, but there's a couple of things there that you, this kind of you've reached a moment with COVID where I don't think movie theaters were as they were. They weren't absolutely right beforehand. You didn't. You may not have the content there. I think there's been a marvelization of the cinema to a certain extent. You know, you can't sustain that big blockbuster every six weeks. It felt like for a while, Marvel were coming out with something else and taking over the space, and then the rise of streaming as well, and people knowing. Actually, if I do stay at home and I do pay my £10 a month Disney, or I think I don't think it's that, it's, it's 8 99 a month for Disney, in six weeks or eight weeks or something like that, it's gonna, I'll be able to watch it here anyway. So uh, cinema becomes a difficult thing. Some films break through that. I think Top Gun, Ma- Top Gun Maverick broke through that a little bit. Great film. Had to be seen in the cinema. But it's, it's, like, a, it's like a perfect storm of things wrong for, for, for cinema. Yeah, I think, I think you're probably right. And I love a good film, but equally the effort goes to the cinema when I could just put it on a big telly with the kids and we most people these days as well have got pretty good equipment at home even your basic 4k telly is is pretty good these days i think to be fair yeah totally we're not back in the you know 14 inch black and white thing stuck in a corner and haven't been for a very long time ever since i'd say plasmas and the first big lcds came out people have got so much better equipment in their houses and the sound equipment sound bars at least have become a lot more prevalent so i think you're right that we've got the tech at home now that, that actually makes going to the cinema a little, a bit more of an effort than it might have been at one time. Yeah, I think that's it. It is a bit more of an effort. I think it is worth it for the right film. Definitely. I love a good film at the cinema. Do you think that Oppenheimer, which will be the new Christopher Nolan film next year, and he likes to make things a cinema event, do you think that's going to be an event? Well, we had Tenet during lockdown, didn't we? And he famously wanted to hold it for the cinema, get people back in the cinema. The Warner Brothers said no, and they ended up releasing it. So, yeah, I don't know. I wonder whether that's going to get people in. But equally, I think Tenet went too far, and people just didn't get it. 
because it is a very complicated film to watch. I wonder whether I wonder whether Oppenheimer will, will do what he wants and get people a back into cinema, but also be be the mass population appreciate. I don't know. I mean, Nolan is a bit of an edge case. He can, of course, do the big populist stuff. I think the Batman trilogy proved that he could do the big populist stuff. But he has the odd miss as well. I mean, Interstellar, I'd say, was a bit of a miss. And Tenet was definitely a bit of a miss. And I am I was quite sniffy about it to begin with. I thought it was far too... It was far too pretentious, for want of a better word. You know, it was clever and it knew it was clever. I've gone back yeah. on that. I've gone back on that a little bit. I've watched it a couple of times. I've watched a couple of people explain to me what was going on with it. And it is an extremely clever film, but has some good moments in it. Interstellar, I think, is far too pretentious for what it is, frankly. But the Batman films are great. You know, I thought Dunkirk was an excellent film. You know, he's a good filmmaker. Inception is a wonderful piece of work. Truly, I've... Fantastic. I have a colleague who describes it as just recursion in it, which always always makes me smile every time I see it as a proper programmer reference. But yeah, interesting. No, good filmmaker. And I hope Oppenheimer does because it is an interesting story and I'll be curious to see how he can bring it about really. So yeah, maybe it'll bring... Sorry, I was going to say, I think I agree with you. I think I agree on on what you're saying. I've enjoyed... I was just looking at a list of his films and I think I should enjoy all of them. If you put one on now, I'd probably sit down and watch it. I quite like Insomnia, which is very different to his films. It's not clever just a film with and it's got Robin Williams in it it's fantastic but I think they're all very good I actually I quite like Interstellar like some of the music in it I I don't know why it just really struck with me just enjoy it I like the way that you go to the different planets and obviously time moves differently and just I don't know I quite, I quite enjoyed it I'm quite looking forward to watching some of these films with my children for the first time when they're old enough oh don't get me wrong I don't think it's a bad film and I agree with you the music is fantastic one thing I would say is do you like The Martian? I've never, I've never heard of it the Ridley Scott film The Martian with Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, um, Matt, with Matt Damon? Yes, I love that film. You could watch The Martian with Matt Damon and then see him, I don't think this is a spoiler, in Interstellar and view it as Mark Watney gone bad, actually. If you watch it again next time, keep that in mind. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? Sorry, The Martian, yes, I have seen it. It's fantastic. I do love a Ridley Scott or a Tony Scott film. Uh, Ridley Scott, 85, this uh, last week. No way. Okay, I wouldn't have guessed that. No, no, you wouldn't have guessed that. I, I, I didn't either. I was quite surprised to see it. We're in danger of doing media here, actually. And I have thought of a thing we should have put in media just to discuss, and that's Sight and Sound's list of the top 100 films of all time, which was published on Sunday night, I think it was. So the thing, the, the list of critics who get together who decide what the best films in the world are, and you can almost guarantee Citizen Kane is at the top of that list every year, but it's not this year. So maybe I'll remember to put that in the show notes and we can maybe talk about that next week, because there's a few films in there that I think would be uh, would be worth us discussing. Yeah, why don't we take some homework away? Let's do that. Anyway, should we do some follow-up? Let's dive straight into follow-up. So uh, first up was I said I would go away and use the app Net Newswire, which I've done on my iPhone because I had previously tried a read kit. And this is an app to consume RSS feeds as I'm trying to work out what my world looks like with or without Twitter. And that's just pretty good. I think it's fair to say it does. shows me all the articles I want to see. I don't read all the articles. I just want to see what's new on certain websites, largely tech websites. And there's a big button in the bottom left, which marks them all as red, which is perfect for me. So I think it's very good. I pointed at my Feedly service that I've signed up for for free to put my RSS feeds in. And actually quite impressed with Feedly. It works, it's free, and I can put any front end app on it I like. So that seems pretty good to me. Yeah, so, so I think Net News Wire is pretty good, and it's free. I, I feel like I should donate them some money, but I don't know how I can do that. I couldn't find anything. You normally get me in the settings. I couldn't find anything about that, but maybe people should do it for the love. Yeah, I think Brent Simmons, who's the developer of NetNewsWire, wrote an RSS reader 
way back when on the Mac. I think it was one of the original OS X apps, actually, possibly even before that, and then sold it to a company, and then that company didn't do much with it, and he got it back. I don't think he bought it back, and continues to develop it for the love of developing it. And a story that might come up a couple of times this t- at the moment is how popular RSS is becoming again. If you listen to this podcast, you consume RSS. Pod- podcast clients actually make use of the RSS standard, which stands for really simple syndication as a means of indexing podcasts and what comes next. Google made it quite famous with their Google Reader app back in the day where you could consume them and then they've retired that. And the advent of things like Twitter and Facebook, I think, kind of pushed news reading off to the side a little bit. But I'm seeing a bit of a resurgence, actually. You know, you're talking about it. I've used NetNewsWire since it came back to the Mac in, 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 in anger, as it has done, as we've been talking about. But then there's little hints of it as well. Like, for example, Mastodon, which well, I won't talk about quite so much this week, but I'm going to mention. Every single person on Mastodon, when you, for want of a better word, toot, when you put out their equivalent of a tweet when you post it, you can actually subscribe to that user as an RSS feed. So you don't need to subscribe to Mastodon to see what people are saying. You can actually subscribe to them as RSS feeds, which is really clever, actually. If you don't want to be part of the service, but just follow a couple of people, you can bung them in NetNewsWire or your RSS reader of choice and actually see what they're saying. I think that's really good. Yeah, that's quite interesting, actually. I hadn't thought that that was the thing, but I guess it makes sense. Federated world, all open not wedding you to any one client Got it. and it is a micro blogging service you know it, in the way that blogs people used to write long form blogs and still do you know and you'd, you'd follow gruber or somebody like that uh, on daring fireball to see his thoughts on Macs and, and uh, the apple world you can do this for individuals on on mastodon i just think it's quite a nice little thing yeah maybe that's my way of consuming some mastodon without actually signing up i do think that actually the recent twitter thing it's just going to end up with me leaving Twitter and that'll be one less social media account for me, which I haven't exactly got many. So I'd say that as a positive. You do like simplifying though. So I think this will work out quite well for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm all right with it. I'm all right with it. Next bit of follow-up then is there's been another iOS, iPadOS beta update. And for those of you using an iPad, it seems to be pretty good for stage manager. Sorry, I forgot the name for a moment then. They seem to have addressed a lot of the little quirks with the thing. There used to be a control on screen blocking text fields and things. And they seem to have got a fix in for that. Seems a lot less buggy. They haven't really changed it much since it was originally previewed. So it hasn't really changed, but it just seems to work, if that makes sense. So I'm actually feeling quite comfortable with the update that's coming out in about a week's time or so, I think it's, or even this week they're they're talking around. So I'm looking forward to 16.2. I think it'll be great to get everybody being able to do proper stage manager, use multiple screens. I am literally the only person in my company of 5,000 people that uses it. So it'd be good to see if I can start getting some more people thinking about this, especially if they, they're traveling, they just bring their iPad with them. There is a lot you can do with the iPad, I think, with that, without even knowing it. And all of our desks at work have USB-C on it, a keyboard and a mouse. So it could be quite a good way of, you know, seeing if it sticks with more people or am I just a unicorn? Well, I, I don't think you're just a unicorn, but there's not many of you. You're some sort of endangered species, like a rhino or an elephant or something like that, but maybe not a unicorn. Oh, poor one out for the rhinos and the elephants. Maybe pandas. Yeah, none of this is good, but uh, that'll make us sad, so I think we should move on. No, that is interesting. I think anything that can make the iPad a better, more rounded device is a good thing. My little peaks and stage manager on it, it's better than it is on the Mac, because I, I, I see where it's going, but I think it makes sense on the iPad more than the Mac because there's no other way of doing it on the iPad. Whereas on the Mac, it's, you're forcing yourself to use it a little bit. So I did remote onto my Mac earlier. 
just to run an update. And I had stage manager turn on. And I was like, oh, what? it kind of broke my mind, even though I use stage manager all day on my iPad. I was using it on my Mac. And I was like, it doesn't feel quite right. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I've had 20 years of using a Mac without stage manager. Yeah, that's the way I feel of stage manager. It's resolutely off on my Mac. I manage my Windows myself. Thank you very much. The other thing just to note with 16.2 when it lands is you need to update all your things, whether it's smart speakers, TVs, and then you'll be able to grade your home infrastructure in the home app. And I'm curious to see what that brings because I, I don't think we know what that looks like yet. So that'll be interesting. Has your Apple Studio display been updated? No, it's still on 15 point insert number here six i'm going to say so it'd be interesting to see i'd love to know is there going to be an update out for my studio display it means when i plug into my ipad i could use the camera on it and the mics off of it i want to know because if apple can make that work that then starts opening up the market for doing more and more with your ipad yeah that would be a good thing and given how average everybody says the camera is on the studio display i think it still gives you more options doesn't it i mean i'm fiddling around with options on my mac at the moment i've got my mac shut in clamshell mode and i'm using continuity camera to talk to you tonight and the the i feel it's a bit of a tight crop on my face i think i need a better mount on top of my screen for my phone is maybe the answer to this but yeah it's a thing so um, yeah i think you deserve more options having spent all the money on the display it would be nice to get the maximum benefit out of it really the big change for me would be if the, if I could use the camera on the studio display, I can then put my app on there, which would say Teams or Zoom, and then I can look at that, the big screen, and have people on the big screen or have them on the big screen and an app next door. Whereas at the moment, I have to do that all on the smaller iPad screen. So for me, it would be a much better, I think, for the people I'm having a meeting with. So even if I am reading my email while I'm talking to them, I'm at least looking at the same screen that they're on. So I'm curious to see what they do with it. So yeah, fingers crossed for an update coming. Fair enough. No, sounds good. I will wait for the final release. I'm not installing betas at this point in the development cycle. On that, I have got the beer on my iPhone, the public one, and I do find the battery life has improved somewhat. And I must confess that I have set the screen to go to black when it's in standby mode. So it shows me the date, the time, the widgets, but it doesn't show the wallpaper. And actually that's A, help my brain think, oh yeah, it's it's in standby mode because you can't see the wallpaper at all. And B, I think that's helped with my battery, but I'm definitely getting a lot more battery life out of my phone. So win-win. That's a good thing. Good. Okay. I think that'll do us for follow-up. In the news, the first story is yours. Yeah. So I went for a couple of odd stories this week. Just why not? Because I said I said the tech, tech news is a bit slow. So this one was about Moore's Law. So Moore's Law was a law that came out in the 70s. And basically this guy, Gordon Moore, predicted that the density of transistors on circuit boards would double about every two years. And that's more or less kept true now. What are we, 40-something years later, 47 years later, say, 45 years later? And that's roughly held water, which is fantastic. And then what I noticed today on the register, actually, was AMD think that Moore's Law will continue going for another eight years. So I think people thought we were starting to come to the end of it and go, actually, you know, we are going to reach a point where we're not going to double every two years. But AMD believe the amount of tech they've got going on is going to keep Moore's Law going for another eight years or so. So I thought, I just thought it was quite interesting as a little tidbit. It is. So it's 57 years since he, he coined this. It was 1965 when he was working for Fairchild. He, he, he coined this term. So, I mean, that's really quite a long time. Uh, frankly go on you're right i read 75 apologies you're yeah. right yeah 57 years it's, it's not bad is it it's not bad we haven't had airplanes much longer than that really when you think about it anyway moving swiftly along yeah i agree with you it is interesting because there was certainly a period there where 
Intel specifically, we're definitely slowing down. And we've talked on this show before about going from, they used to have a TikTok cadence where they'd have a big upgrade and then a point upgrade and a big upgrade and a point upgrade. And that was Moore's law effectively ticking along that every year you'd get a bump in their chips and then you get a much bigger one every two years. So we very quickly went from 386, 486, Pentium, Pentium 2, you know, and if you remember those chip generations going back, that's the way it went, as was happening for other manufacturers. So Motorola went through with the 68,000 series computers and all the other chips that were sort of being fabbed at that point. When we got to the point of, well, just before Apple Silicon, really, it had, as I was saying, kind of slowed down a little bit. But this is an interesting article that, you know, for another six to eight years, this is actually going to continue. That's really quite impressive. And you've got to think, if it's going to go another six to eight years, which will take us to, you know, 67 years effectively, surely it'll go a bit longer than that or are we into quantum quantum computing by then or, the, or a new thing comes along but I, I wouldn't bet against the established technology you know it's always the thing that they're more likely to keep, keep going and it's interesting that amd have come out with it not intel and i think you're right intel have massively slowed down over the last insert number here 10 years say and obviously that's been reflected but no, i just thought it was interesting like i say side note because moore's law is always something you're told about when you're studying computers and it actually is born through which i think is quite impressive yep i agree no interesting story two links in the show notes will be there one on what moore's law was and who the chap was who coined it and a little bit from the register on amd's transistor tech good okay so moving on we've got to have our weekly update of of twitter and this week it's what elon has tweeted as much as anything else so Earlier in the week, Elon tweeted that Apple hates free speech, which I thought was an amazing state from, statement from to come out with. Basically, because Apple had not had stopped spending as much on advertising, and effectively, what he, what his tweet says is on November twenty eighth, Apple has mostly stopped advertising on Twitter. Do they hate free speech in America? Swiftly followed by what's going on here at Tim Cook. This is. This is boys in the playground stuff, isn't it? You don't do this kind of stuff if you're CEO of a, of a multi-billion dollar company. It's a bit weird, isn't it, that you're a CEO of multi, multi-billion pound companies or billion dollar companies. Interesting, you wrote free speech in America because it's not just in America. This is, Twitter is very much a worldwide platform. So it's a bit odd, isn't it? I don't really like calling people out in public like that. I think if somebody's done something in public, you should call them out like that. But I, oh, I don't know. This feels a bit, bit wrong. But then... This is the problem, isn't it, with the roller coaster? Uh, if you got it coming out, there, then Elon then went to Apple Park and met with Tim Cook. I listened to a podcast this week, which I don't know recently came out, but it's already aged itself because they spoke about Twitter on it and the world had moved on in the two days it took them to process it. And it is the problem when you talk about Twitter, such a fast moving landscape of one catastrophe after another. Yeah, it's it's really something else. And it, like you say, you date your podcast very quick talking about it. But at the same time, it's such a presence of what we're doing at the moment and the, and the very fast sinking ship that seems to be Twitter. But having gone from accusing Tim Cook of hating it, as you said, he, he, he went to Apple Park, he met Tim Cook and everything was shiny again. They've resumed their advertising spend. And I don't know. There's something. There's some. There's something very wrong with the whole situation. One is him having to do this, or feeling like he could do this, and bringing free speech into it. Where you think most companies, the reason most companies have stopped their advertising spend with Twitter is because he's got rid of a lot of the moderation things. And the last thing you want your brand to do is appear next to some very divisive tweet from somebody like Kanye West, who's also been barred from Twitter in the last week. With but you know, buy Coca, drink Coca Cola underneath it. You can completely understand his particular brand of glorifying a certain right-wing dictator from the 1940s Germany 
you know, and, and, and sticking that next to Coca-Cola. You can understand why Coca-Cola would be nervous to advertise. And equally, Apple. You wouldn't want some of the, let's face it, some of the right, some of the lunatics he's let back onto Twitter who were barred for very good reasons, like inciting riots in the Capitol, for example. You can understand why Apple might be a bit cautious about that. So it, it's it, it's only free speech as applies, applies to Elon, frankly, in that, in that tweet. It's not free speech as applies to other people. But then Apple's position on this is just, once again, complete silence. What is going on there? It feels a bit odd, don't you think? I agree with everything you've just said, by the way. But why have Apple started re-advertising on that platform? That, that feels wrong to me. I'd love to know what was discussed between these two CEOs because it feels like Musk is at complete odds to Tim Cook in beliefs, you know, moral compass. And it was kind of the same when Tim Cook met Donald Trump at the Texas Mac Pro manufacturing plant. It looked very uncomfortable. You know, Tim Cook had said a few things publicly. Obviously, he's got to be careful what he says and doesn't say because he's got to play the game and keep his company going. But what what did they talk about? Why is Apple re-advertised on that platform? Does Apple need to advertise on Twitter and be associated with that? I wouldn't have thought so. No, I don't get that. I mean, I can't think there's many people sit looking at... To be honest, even when I was more on Twitter, which I'm certainly not anymore... I didn't see an awful lot of Apple adverts, and I don't think if I'd seen an Apple advert in Twitter, it would have compelled me to want to buy anything. I, mean, I can understand Instagram or lifestyle brands or something like that being a bit more in the cachet of what Apple is trying to do. You know, you want to take the best pictures on your platform, use an iPhone, that kind of stuff. Twitter is just a, it's a town square and a very messy town square, it must be said at this point for, you know, with everybody's rubbish lying around all over the place. So... I, I don't understand why Apple is spending so much on this. I guess, you know, is it part of the, the, the Apple TV, something like that? Is that what they're sort of pushing very hard? No, I don't know. Yeah, it's an odd one, isn't it? I, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't sit right with me that yeah. Apple have reneged so quickly on coming off the platform. So yeah. something's got to have happened, but I'd hate to think what. As you say, what has Elon said to Tim Apple? in order to get him to sort of change his opinion on this and start spending the money. Again, we don't actually know until those dollars down and you, and you actually see what they've committed for their advertising spend. You don't know what's changed. Tim Cook might have just gone, yeah, yeah, it's fine, Elon, we'll keep doing it, we'll keep doing it, and then isn't going to. But you don't know. Do you reckon they've broken a deal for Apple to buy Tesla? <laughs> Maybe CarPlay's coming to Tesla. Maybe that was put on the table. <laughs> I do think that's a good enough reason. Yeah, maybe maybe Tim, when if you'll if you'll allow uh, CarPlay on Teslas, then we'll start spending again. I can't think it's that much of a draw. He's such a toxic brand at the moment. I, I've I've read a few things this week about owners of Tesla cars being sort of swerved into on motorways and things like that just because people hate Elon so much at the moment. And you think, well, I haven't personally seen any of that, but people really take offence to this stuff. Yeah, he's not helping any of his companies at the moment. It'll be interesting if the board want to disassociate themselves with him. I don't know. But it could be something like that. You could see Elon, though, mixing the businesses and going, well, if you advertise with that business, I'll do something with you with that business over there. So I don't know. Let's see see what happens. Maybe that's what the Apple Music leak on Tesla was around the other week. It was too soon. But yeah, I think you're right. Maybe we're we're waiting for the other shoe to drop here. Maybe you'll get a free iPhone with every Tesla bot or, you know. If you become a Twitter Blue subscriber, you'll get iCloud subscription or something. Wow. Imagine if they did do something like that. Yeah. That means their service revenue has got very icky all of a sudden. Yeah. Well, the whole thing's very icky. The Apple advertising, as we've discussed before, is icky. So maybe, well, maybe this is an endemic sign of if they're happy to let gambling ads and recovery from gambling people, you know, uh, uh, 
people who are recovering from a gambling addiction in the same place. Maybe they don't care that much who they advertise with, frankly. And that's from the top. Yeah, it's not good, is it? It's really not. Anyway, I think that'll do us for our Twitter update of the week. But yeah, it's, uh, it's all over now. And there's a link to a Guardian article. People can go and read about how the fact that it's all over now. Anyway, moving on. One of our perennial favourites and the Microsoft Activision deal. So we were just saying last week that there might be a lawsuit in regards to the Microsoft, Microsoft and Activision merging, or actually Microsoft buying Activision. But the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, have said they're going to approve more than likely micro, the Microsoft Activision Blizzard buyout. So it's just a little update on that. And that doesn't stop any of the other things, both in the EU and the UK for the Competitions and Mergers Authority here. So it might happen in the US, but there's obviously still some serious questions about it around the rest of the world. Do we know how that works? What happens if the US approve it and the EU decline it? Can I don't it still know. go ahead? I don't know. They're both US companies at the end of the day. I mean, presumably it's where you're... I know you're a global brand, but if you're a US company with trading offices in somewhere in the United States, surely if your, your national regulator approves it, it's good enough. You still need to work with international regulators. You just close your offices in those countries. I, yeah. I, I Generally, I'd have no idea how this works. No, we kind of need a lawyer, don't we? It would help. No, but it's interesting. And, you know, like I say, it's a global issue. Let's say that having both offices in the United States is good enough. What did the EU do in retaliation? All right, Microsoft, well, you can't sell Azure services until you do this. All right, Activision Blizzard, you can't sell any of your games within the EU until until you do this. That's an awful lot of customers. Yeah. Yeah, it's very bizarre, isn't it? It's, yeah, I don't know how this is going to work. It'd be interesting to see how it, how it plays out. Well, I guess they've got offices all over the world. I'm thinking about what we do in terms of healthcare data and university data for on Microsoft services. So we have to have instances of Azure resident in the UK so we can meet all of our requirements for data not leaving the shores of the UK. So I presume it's something similar for this. Well, yeah, we do the same at our work. Not because we have to, but that's our preferred. We want it in the UK. We're a UK company. Why wouldn't we keep all our data in our country? Yeah, uh, I agree. It's just the way it is. But, you know, it's interesting. We'll have to see all these things pan out. But just when you think it's, oh, there'll be a lawsuit, so it's not going ahead in America, it seems to have passed that particular thing. So, yep, that's Microsoft Activision, our update of the week. It's amazing. That's the story that keeps giving, like, the Apple and the dating app in Holland back in the day. So, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, definitely. All right, what we've got next up? Oh, how to remove background images on a Mac. This must be you. This is me. So for those that don't know, when the latest version of iOS and iPadOS came along, there was a little feature in it where you could tap and hold on one of your photographs that had a, a subject, normally a person, but other things in the foreground within it. And so if you'd hold your finger there for a little bit of time, it would lift the subject out of the photograph and you'd be able to save that or paste it in another image. Effectively, it was just doing a machine learning based uh, clever background remove. Anyway, who knew you can actually do this in Ventura as well. So there are, in the posted article, there are two methods for doing this on a Mac that's running Ventura. You can either, in the Photos app, right-click on the image and click Copy Subject, which lifts that, that image out, and then you can paste the subject anywhere you'd like. Or from the Desktop or Finder, you can right-click on the image in Finder, click on Quick Actions, and then click Remove Background, and it will also do it for you. So if you're just trying very quickly to pull a person out of a background or make the background clear, you've got two ways of doing it on your Mac now as well. You don't have to fire up your iPhone. It is very cool. I was just trying it as you were talking. It is awesome. It, it's a really nice thing. And I can't think of all the presentations I've done over the years where I just want the person to come out of it and take them out of the background. It's super useful. 
Yeah, I, yeah, it's fantastic. I, I don't, it's an amazing piece of engineering. But I guess the problem with Apple, though, is fantastic bit of engineering, but it's not obvious. It's not you obvious. Know, and I think that's the problem with it. And I said to you in the pre-show, I was at some friends at the weekend, and their eight-year-old son was showing mum how to do exactly that on her iPhone. She did. It. She was like, "Wow, how long has this been there?" And I was like, "It's been there long." But she was like, "How did you find out about these things?" So it, it, Apple is famed for putting this functionality in. And you load up the new version of the app, and it's like, "Oh." No, nothing there you know but, it's hard to find it it's like when they first did search in mail in ios if you remember that many many years ago about 10 years ago it was like oh i've updated to new version where is it and you, you just had to pull down and then it was there but it just wasn't obvious yeah i quite like those little things at the same time you're right they could do a better job of surfacing them one of my favorites is in keynote is the instant alpha in keynote or if you have got a background that's that you need to make transparent you can just click on instant alpha within the image that you've brought in, tap on the image that's presented to you inside the box, and it'll do its best to remove, you know, cut, remove the background from that. So that's been there for years and years. But this is far cleverer. 100% because it does hair, and hair is always the problem when you're trying to cut somebody up. Hair is tricky, and fur on pets, I can speak. It does a good job on my dog as well, certainly on the, on the phone and the iPad. So, yeah, interesting. For those that want to try it, there's a little tip there how to do it, and it's in the linked article. Fantastic. Right, next up, Dive Computer is out for the Apple Ultra. So this was announced when the Ultra came out, and now the companion app, not made by Apple, but by Oceanic, is out. Yeah, so this was a big thing, wasn't it? When they pre-announced the app, the climbing stuff was there, the find your way back to base camp when you lost Neverest was there, as was the the horn siren thing that you can play to make yourself known within about 30 metres in a blizzard. I'm sure nobody will ever walk past you with your extremely loud tone coming from your apple watch anyway what they really pushed in on was the fact you could actually use the apple watch ultra as a dive computer so this oceanic plus is a dive company they make lots of dive computers we talked about it at the time you can now buy to add to your apple watch i say buy you can rent because it's an in-app purchase it costs 4.99 a day 9.99 a month or 79.99 a year to have the dive computer running on your apple watch ultra so we'll have to get you in some scuba gear chris and down the quarry i am not a diver it does make me laugh when I wear my Apple Watch in the hot tub and it tells me how how, how deep my last dive was. And <laughs> you just put your hand on the bottom of the hot tub. It doesn't. It does. It's fantastic. Oh my gosh. I've got to say, I've got a serious complaint. It's not a complaint. It's an annoyance of my Apple Watch. Every time I get in the shower and I go to wash my hair, it says, caution, loud environment, lots of decibels. And I'm thinking, I'm in the shower. <laughs> it's fantastic. Every morning. I, confess, I, I don't wear mine in the shower, but I do wear it in the hot tub. <laughs> anyway, if you want to make your little dive in your hot tub a little better and you know get some more stats on it, if you pay four ninety nine a day, you can actually have the Oceanic Plus app running on your watch. I'm not sure it's that deep to make it worth it. Well, anyway, I mean, they're saying it gives you lots of features. So it gives you scuba, snorkeling, and surface modes, pre-dive location planning with surface and water conditions. That's actually quite helpful. If you've got a high winds or something like that, if you're going from a boat, if you want to know the beach, particularly the tides and things like that, well, that's going to be there. That's really helpful. It's got a no decompression planner, so it can calculate your dive depth and duration, which is good. It can monitor your current depth. It can give you the remaining dive time and ascent dates. It's all apparently very easy to read. It has a GPS-enhanced post-dive logbook. I guess that's helpful when you're looking for what wreck you've dived on. Stats for your dive, visual and haptic safety warnings, seven watch face complications. I hope you're not going to be changing those underwater. And it works up to 40 meters or 130 feet. Pretty cool. And do you know, side note about the Apple Watch Ultra, it automatically puts it into water mode when you go into water. 
whereas the previous my series six didn't do that and i thought that's quite neat because occasionally i forget and think, oh no i need to put it in lock mode but it, it just does it for you which i think is quite a cool addition i agree anyway it's there if you fancy trying it out and you've got an apple watch ultra you've got to pay a small amount of money you can have a go i think for most people if you were a serious diver you'd pay the annual fee and there is a family plan for it as well but if you're going for a week's diving and you pay the day by day one it's very quickly going to get to the point that you may as well have bought the week's fee bought the year's uh, subscription to it so interesting model yeah not cheap though is it no it's not Anyway, that's that. Moving along. And this is just a little article from Jason Snell that caught my eye, actually, on the Six Colors blog, which I think he's actually published in Macworld, which is the article I'll link to. And it's kind of in line with what I've been talking about for the last few weeks about these voice cylinders. Their days are numbered, really, is what I took away from the article, without there being another sort of hook for them. And what Jason Snell thinks the hook is, is that it should have a screen. It should be like an iPad on the counter with the HomePod stuff built into it, which is actually what we've said before as well. So, except, I mean, I'm willing to accept that. Both Google and Amazon do that, and we know Amazon are losing money. So I'm not 100% convinced that just sticking a screen on the HomePod is the saviour for it. Uh, I wouldn't disagree. Tangentially related, around my friend's house, same people that just discovered how to cut people out of photos, they had just discovered a HomePod Mini. They'd, he said he'd been in the Apple Store loads of times, but for whatever reason, never went to the, the audio bit, found the HomePod Mini there and was like, that sounds amazing. And it's only £90 from Apple. Buy one, instant purchase. Tried it out, and he's like, I'm going to have to buy some more of these because they are a great little device, and you get an Apple premium product for not a crazy amount of money, and I think they're fantastic. So I like the HomePod as it is. I've got two in my kitchen, I've got two in my family room, and I use them for music, not a huge amount, but every now and again, we play music, had some Christmas tunes on at the weekend with the children. I don't know if I'd want a screen on it. I can't decide whether I want that, and I don't know why. I have a concern that the product is pretty much two years old now and hasn't really changed in any noticeable way since from that point. So it's still the same amount of money. Siri is still completely rubbish on it. I can set timers on it. I quite like the stereo pair thing. That works quite well for me. But it is quite a lot of money for a very average sounding device that I set timers on. So, mm. Set timers, turn on lights, occasionally put some on the shopping list. I do love it when one of my children goes up to it and he goes, hello, Harry. And because he's spoken and it knows his name. And then it, when I speak, it goes, Chris and, and my wife and so on. That is fantastic. That is, to me, very clever that you've done nothing to identify yourself other than speak. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, so Siri has some odd clever bits and pieces. Maybe I don't use it for all it can be used for. For example, I know it can be used for your phone. You can say, you can pick up calls on your HomePod rather than that. But I don't really want to shout into the air to answer calls, frankly. I think that's for those people that walk down the street on speakerphone that want everybody to hear their calls, which I can't stand if I'm brutally honest. So apologies to anybody out there if you're, if you're a speakerphone person. But I want my call to be in my ear, not in front of everybody else i find that a bit odd i've never really used it for phone calls i love them i think they're good i probably like you don't use them enough i do think it is a good product and if somebody wants a smart speaker i would happily recommend one i do like with the latest ios 16 where you have the now playing bit on the home screen and if you're in the room with the speaker playing the music you can pause it you can see who who's playing you know it's kind of doing the remote screen in a way that's mm. quite cool i do like it and you can hand off music to it so if you're playing something on your iphone you hold it over the air home pod and it will push that tune to, to it. I think there's some good stuff there, but whether we're seeing it with the 16.2 update and matter because it's got thread radios in it, I don't know. 
or whether this thread stuff is actually going to be not nothing major. But, who knows? No, I don't. I don't disagree with anything you've said. But it's a bit worrying to me that only thing that makes you really think about HomePods are articles like this, where you go, otherwise it's just this bit that sits in the corner, which is where we've consigned Alexa and where we've consigned the Google Nest products recently. So I think unless they do something with it that's interesting make it a lot cheaper, you know, market it in a way that it becomes obvious to people like your friends who suddenly realized it was a thing. They've got a bit of because geeks like us have bought them to try them out as much as anything else, but it's obviously not made any sort of impact on the rest of the market. So yeah, it's an Apple premium product for under a hundred pounds, go Apple. I'd suggest most people would be better off buying a set of AirPods than one of these though, because they'll get far more use out of an AirPod than one of these. Yeah, I don't disagree with, with that statement. Yeah, I think it's fair. I, I do wish they'd do quad as well. So the moment you can do stereo pair with two HomePods, the, these things would be great in like a quad formation. So you put one in the corner of each room if you're really going to go for it. And it's not an ex- too expensive a way of having full-on surround sound in a large area. Yeah, you still need a center. You still need a subwoofer potentially. They don't put enough bass for... Yeah, I can see that. I, I just mean, I was thinking about this in my kitchen space, just more for background. Whereas at the moment where you only have two, you, you two turn them up a bit higher to get the sound in the other areas of the room. But I, I love it. I think they're a good device. I want them to keep doing it. And if they could bring the price point down, I think that would only bode well. Fair enough. Anyway, interesting article, worth a read for anybody who wants to know a little bit more about the home push for products. And again, I, I'm going to finish my thoughts by saying they made quite a big push for these at, at the iPhone event where you know they were showing the use of them. It wasn't in the iPhone event. It was at WWDC where they actually built a home set so you could see people moving around in the home, and they haven't really pushed forward in that space at all. It was a cool set, though. Was that this year or last year? That was this year, I think. If it was last year, that's even more of a worry. Well, that's kind of where I was going with that. I can't remember what year it was. Anyway, that's that. Moving on, I've linked to a Mastodon article, which you can subscribe to in your RSS feed review, but it's by Craig Granell, who's a writer for Stuff Magazine, or was a writer for Stuff Magazine, I think he does his own things now, where he's got his iPhone Classic App Series. So what he's done is he's got a number of apps, some of which you'll recognize, and he's actually spoken to the developers about the sort of development process of them and where they were and where they are now and all the rest of it. It's just, it's really intimate, it's very well done, and there's some fantastic apps in here. So he's talked to Twitterific, he's talked to Animog, Instapaper, Reader, PCalc, James Thompson there, Fantastical, Bloom, NetNewsWire, so all the stuff we're talking about Brent Simmons before, you can go and have a read and see what the evolution of that. Carrot Weather, which is my Carrot Weather, Carrot Weather is my app of choice for doing the weather forecast, and Streaks, which is designed to build good behavior for doing, you know, hitting your step goals every day or drinking some, a certain amount of water every day, things like that. So just a really nice little link to a bunch of articles that are quite well written about apps that, that we know and love for the iPhone and the iPad. Yeah, there's certainly some good apps in here, actually. I quite like the look of it, and I'm just clicking on a few. I think I think it looks good and nice, nice quite concise bit of detail behind them so uh, yeah definitely recommend yep good and the last story is yours oh this was just a little thing i put in there do you know it's 30 years of the text message on the 30th on the 3rd of december apologies so 30 years since the first text message was sent and i didn't know this but it was actually sent in the uk at vodafone they were they were trying out and the message was merry christmas so i just thought a little bit of trivia I'm just looking at the article, which is from the BBC. Mr. Jarvis's phone, a new to the market Orbitel 901, weighed 2.1 kilograms, roughly the same as 12 standard iPhone 14s. Wow. Yeah, you wouldn't want that in your pocket. But it's slightly interesting stat more recently. In 2021, there were 40 billion SMS messages sent. I thought well, that doesn't sound that many. But back in 2012, it was 150 billion. 
So you can see, obviously, texting is on the decline. There's very few people I text. I, I message nearly everybody because a lot of my friends are in the uh, Apple ecosystem. Yeah, and we've talked on this show repeatedly about Telegram, WhatsApp, Signal, Facebook Messenger, all these things taken over from and Google's RCS standard as well. They're trying to push forward with, which apparently is going to be encrypted, encrypted at both ends any minute now, RCS. So that will stop. You know, there'll be a, bit, a huge outcry when that comes along because, you know, you won't be able to do the wire anymore and track criminals for even on their burner handsets. But surely there's then no excuse for Apple not to support it because it's better than SMS. You would have thought so, but I think the only place that this is an issue is the United States. Everybody else uses something else anyway. As you're saying, SMS is declining. Messaging on phones is declining. People are using services to do it. Yeah, fair one. And on that note, there's 100 million I've got that number right. Is it 100 million? 100 billion, sorry, WhatsApp messages a day. 100 billion a day. That is a lot of messaging. That's why I was doubting myself when I said million, about 100 billion a day, which just seems insane. But looking at my wife's phone, I could quite believe it. Yeah, yeah, that's quite a stat, isn't it? 40 billion SMS messages in 2021. So for the year, 40 billion. And WhatsApp does 100 billion a day. I mean, that is a serious change in, in infrastructure. That's what you call scale. That really is scale. Right. Fair enough, Meta. That's not bad, actually. That's not yeah, bad. You can see you can see why they bought them. Yeah, totally. And then if the EU get their way and all these messaging apps need to be intercommunicable, then who else is going to be able to deal with the scale of, of well, WhatsApp? I'm quite happy they don't intercommunicate because I'd have to be on the WhatsApp groups and all of that, and I'm quite happy to not be on them. Interesting times. Anyway, good. I think that'll do us for news. Yep, on to media then. So first up, I put this in, Indiana Jones 5 trailer. Now, I haven't seen Indiana Jones in a long time. I kind of want to go back and watch the first three, possibly the fourth one, just for completionist. I say a bit tongue-in-cheek, and I did see the fourth one at the cinema, and it just it, yeah, it wasn't as good, was it, to be fair? I'd forgotten that Steven Spielberg had directed all four, um, and on the fifth one, he's going to be an executive producer. And it's actually directed by the director who did Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash film, which I really enjoyed that. So I thought the trailer looked quite good, looked interesting. I did, and my computer graphics sensor was out, did think some of the the effects were looking a little bit dubious. Now, it's not coming out, I think, till next year. So are they going to do any more with it? But for me, some of it looked too CGI'd, if that's the right terminology. What did you think? Yeah, I did watch the trailer. A link in the show notes, as always, to the YouTube trailer. I also thought it looked a bit CGI'd. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is the fourth one. That's the one. I couldn't remember the name. I was on call. I went to see it in the cinema as well. I was glad to get called out of the cinema to go and deal with the call. I was so annoyed with the movie. I was very happy to walk out halfway through. That's, that's not good, is it? It was a terrible film. And I'm open to the argument that all of them are fantastical. But it was just bad. It was badly written, badly casted. The stunts were awful. The CGI was bad. It didn't do anything for, for the legend of Indiana Jones at all. It was a waste of time. I was trying to explain this concept to my children a while ago. I can't remember what film we were talking about. They wanted a, a second one. Oh, it'd be great if they made another one of ins, insert film here. And I said, well, sometimes it's not always a good thing because it can spoil the universe, you know, the world that that, that film's set in or the characters or it doesn't do it justice. Sometimes if you've got a really good film that you love, you think, oh, they never get it wrong. Terminator, for example. Love Terminator 1, love Terminator 2. Watched it a huge amount as a kid. And then the rest of them just never really did anything for me. So you care for what you wish for sometimes. I'm curious to see it. I think it's a tough act to follow though, but who knows? I'll, I'll go and I'm sure I'll see it. Maybe that will be the cinema event of next year. Maybe it will. I, 
I want it to be good. You know, I have a lot of affection for it. I don't feel the fourth film spoiled the franchise. I still think the first three films are terrific. I'd give them a chance. I think if the second one does the same as Crystal Skull, they might have spoiled the franchise. But I'm, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yep, I do want to go back and watch Raiders, actually. I must put that up the list of films to rewatch. I'm really unusual. I really like Temple of Doom, actually. I think it's a great film. I haven't seen them all for so long. Oh, and here's my useless fact of the day, is that the kid in, in fact, I may have mentioned this before, the kid in Temple of Doom, Short Round, the, the character is called Short Round, is in a recent film called Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is an amazing film, like The Matrix for this generation, which I would thoroughly recommend that somebody should go and watch Everything Everywhere All at Once. It, is, it made me cry, actually. It's a, it's a ridiculous parallel reality martial arts film with Michelle Yeoh uh, and this actor whose who's name slipped in mind for the moment who was short written in Indiana Jones. It's terrific. It, absolutely terrific film. It, I wouldn't say it's the stop everything you're doing and go and watch it in the way that Taskmaster was, but it's it's well worth the watch. It's great. Sorry, so, I'm just trying to find it. It's not books, movies. So, moving on, just while you're Googling frantically there. Just sticking in my iTunes wish list, oh, which enough. is the best feature of iTunes, even sticks. <laughs> films in a list and then go and buy them when they're on sale or wait for them to come on streaming slow horses season two is it apparently i may have sat down last night after a long weekend with my family only long because we had a nine-year-old's birthday party to contend with and i watched back to back the first two episodes of series two of slow horses and it just carried off where the first one finished and in my opinion very good i'm curious to see a season because some of it is set near where i live and i wonder whether they used any locations it's hard to tell lots of green fields and out in the sticks compared to being in in a london there is still some in in the london but no fantastic i really enjoyed it gary oldman oh fantastic love it love him i hope he continues because i think they've signed up for season three and four i've not read those books yet i have read the first two books and i enjoyed the books i think the author's done a great job he's feels like he's been plugging away in the background because he's done a number of books and then obviously this has propelled him into the spotlight fair enough real-time follow-up you can stream everything everywhere all at once from amazon prime so there you go that sounds a lot better than 13.99 you don't need to go and buy it from apple unless you really really want to i'm sure it'll look fantastic no i'm quite excited about it i saw it came out last friday i haven't had an opportunity to watch any of it yet the trailer looked good i saw kristen scott thomas was on graham norton last friday as well talking it up she thoroughly enjoyed making it she said it was nice to do tv fantastic to work with gary oldman so they're obviously having a blast making it as well yeah i will settle down and watch it did they drop just one or did they do three two obviously <laughs> which got me because i watched the first one and it said oh the next one's here i was like brilliant i can watch all three and then i've watched got to the end of the second one and then, then it was showing me adverts for other things and i was like oh where's the third one because i thought they either do one or three but they've done two f- for whatever reason maybe it's so it finishes at a certain date or something i don't know fair enough oh well i mean something different of course for season two no good quite excited to see it thoroughly enjoyed the first season i'm with you i didn't go as far as reading the books but i know you thoroughly enjoyed them on holiday so yeah no very good for me i haven't got around to yet is mythic quest raven's banquet season three is also out not to quite the fanfare slow horses was so this is rob mcelaney who was responsible for it's always sunny in philadelphia he had a show on apple tv called mythic quest raven's banquet obviously which was a ridiculous name charting the rise of a a computer game studio they're set somewhere in america his name is ian but everybody has to call him and just how pretentious that world is and sort of peeks into it and all the rest of it about the developing of a patch for a world of warcraft type game basically which is why it's called mythic quest raven's banquet it's a lot of fun it's not nearly as gross as it's always sunny in philadelphia the people aren't quite as nasty 
there's lot little hints in there to the world of IT and development and programmers and games testers and all that kind of stuff. If you're if you're bored one evening, I think it's worth a watch. The first season in particular has a lovely heart and, and a couple of really standout excellent episodes. So I still haven't finished season two for lots of reasons. I got distracted. But season one is fantastic and I will go back and revisit season two because it, it's a very well done show. I never find time to watch all of them. Stop giving me more homework. This isn't really homework. I'm just saying it's there. Do everything everywhere all at once if you have to do one thing this week. This week? <laughs> it's pressure. <laughs> it's only a film. You like a film. Put it on in the background. I do like a film. I also watched the last episode of SAS Rogue, Se- Rogue Heroes, which is the slightly fictionalized story of the birth of the SAS out of the long-range desert group in Africa in the Second World War. Great cast. Very Peaky Blinders, I've mentioned it a couple of times in the show. Only six episodes, available in HD on BBC iPlayer through your LG TV, not your Apple TV. Real looks fantastic. Good soundtrack. I, 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 I'm just full of platitudes for it, really. It's a really well done thing. There is going to be a second season the BBC have announced. You know, there's no spoilers here. You can go and read the history of the SAS. It's based on a book, and it's based on the, you know, the real-world events of how they came about. But yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been entertaining the last few Sunday nights, and it's there on the iPlayer for anybody who wants to watch it. I watched the football last night. There was football. There was football on. If if you live in England, (laughs) people were watching a lot of football. But I was watching it on the ITV app on my Apple TV. I did think, hmm. And this this wasn't on my big OLED. This was on my smaller 4K TV. But I did think, hmm, the picture quality is not great. And then I thought, I'll go and watch it. I'll try the TV app out. But the TV is so old. There is no really, you know, TV apps on it. But you are slowly making me think, I need to start using the TV apps rather than the Apple TV apps, which will annoy me because I love having the Apple TV. I've got them on all the TVs and I can just use it and the kids can just use it. But it's cheesed me off a little bit, if I'm honest. I did mean, and I think I need to try this out, is with the Sky app, which is now out on the Apple TV, to see whether that will play BBC One at 4K. I doubt it, but I'm going to try it. Hang on now. The Sky app, which will then package the iPlayer app inside of it. Is that what you're saying? And it's not got iPlayer, but if you're watching live TV, you can stream live TV through the Sky app. So I wonder whether that would, what resolution that plays at. I very much doubt it. I do, because Sky, Sky will just want you to use their box. Mm. Uh, I want stuff just to work in the app. So we'll have to see. Fair enough. Anyway, that was SAS Rule Cures. And my last thing that I managed to watch, and I've only watched three episodes of it, and again, it's six episodes, is called We Own This City, which is a true story of a particular group within Baltimore Police in, in the United States. It was the Gun Task Force, I think was the name of them. And how corrupt the police were inside of it and the whole thing that was going on in the city at the time. It's by the same writers that did The Wire back in the day. It's terrific. As soon as you said Baltimore, I was thinking, isn't that The, the Wire? Yeah, you know, that's where The yeah. Wire said. I've never seen The Wire all the way through. So I've got some more TV to watch. We're in the city. It's got, I'm going to mangle his name, but it's got John Berthnall in it. I don't know if I've said that correctly. I think it's Bentall. Bentall. He yeah. is fantastic. I think he's good in everything I've seen him in. He was great in baby driver and various other films just such a good actor he is terrific he was great as the punisher in the marvel tv show which was briefly on netflix he was fantastic good from the walking dead is which were where i saw him first i think was in the walking dead the first season of that and he's in ford versus ferrari or le mans 1966 as well he plays lee iacocca for ford motor company he is a terrific actor and he's he's really good in this and he plays he plays more or less the head of the gun task force from this so he's not playing a good character in this but the as far as I've got, they sort of chart his history from when he sort of graduates as an initial police officer to when he becomes sergeant in charge of this task force. And it, it shows both, it very much in the way The Wire did, where it shows the cops and the robbers. 
this does the same sort of thing. It shows them as sort of young idealistic police officers and how they get changed and then what else is going on in the city and the politics and things like that. You've got to be paying attention. You know, this isn't one you can sort of drift off and look at something else while it's going on. If you miss something, then, you know, you're, you're going to be lost in about five minutes. One of the actors I did think was interesting it's all based on real people. There's an officer, Herzl, and he was in uh, Dead Poet Society. I think he was sort of the lead kid in Dead Poet Society, who I haven't seen in anything forever. So it was quite nice to see that actor as well. But yeah, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying We Own This City. There's just too much good stuff out there. There is, but if it's by the people who are involved with The Wire, I'm watching it because I love The Wire. Well, and HBO is a good good start for 10 normally as well, isn't it? So, okay. Yep. More, more to go on the list. For sure. I think that's it for media, unless I've missed something. No, that's it. Games, then. Games. Is this all on me this week? I just got one note at the end, I think. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the rod game section. So I discovered a thing that I thought would be of interest to you more than anything else this week, and it's called OpenRA, link in the show notes, and it's Open Red Alert. So you've heard Chris bang on at length back in the uh, about six months ago about Red, uh, Red Alert, Command & Conquer Red Alert Remastered which was a real-time strategy game developed by Westwood Studios back in the day, was Red Alert. I want to say mid-90s, early 90s maybe, thereabouts. Uh, mid, mid to late 90s, I think. I was at secondary school. Yeah, fantastic game. You, you've you got to start a base, pound stuff, create units, and then you send them off to take out the other guy's base is effectively it, with, a, with some wrinkles around that. But it was very inventive. The sound was great. Design was good. And it was an innovator. It was the first one of its kind, really, that did this kind of stuff. And which has since been taken to great heights by other companies. Blizzard being one, actually, in the sense of StarCraft and things like that, who sort of pushed along with that. Anyway, what I discovered the other day was this platform called OpenRA, which is an open source initiative to recreate Red Alert entirely from scratch. So you can go and you can download three versions of this. It's the original Red Alert. It's got June 2000, and it's got one that I'm blanking on at the moment, the, the sort of the, the redhead, the stepchild. It's, it's got the four, hasn't it? So it's got Tiberium Dawn, the first one, Red Alert, the second one, June 2000, and then Tiberium Sun is currently in, in beta mode. Yeah, but it's all community developed. So some very dedicated, there's map development tools with it as well. And people have gone off and rather than recreate the original ones, they've just made their own versions of them. So you can do the missions and everything from Red Alert Classic. It's been updated to have a more modern command interface. So for example... Back in the day, you couldn't draw a box around a bunch of units to get them to move. You had to click on them individually and send them off to do the thing. It's got those sort of modern niceties for command. It's open source. It's free. If you do own Red Alert on a CD or in media somewhere, you can actually import the soundtrack and all the original maps off the disc and actually make use of those files that you've already got. So it's completely compatible with what's gone before as well. It's just a really nice product that worked beautifully on my M1 Mac, I've got to say. Yeah, I want to try out June 2000 because that hasn't been remastered and I'd love to play it. Just a quick bit of follow-up. Warcraft actually came out before Command & Conquer, 1994. Command & Conquer 1 was 95. And Red Alert that we talk of so lovingly was actually 96. So there you go. There you go. I mean, I never played the original Warcraft. I started with Warcraft 2, I think. Warcraft 2 was amazing at the time. Oh, played that game so much. But I then went back and played the first one. Obviously, it wasn't as good graphically, but... Warcraft 2 was fantastic. What a game. The thing I always enjoyed most about the Warcraft games was if you continually clicked on a unit, how annoyed they'd get with you for, you know, leave me alone and all that kind of stuff. It's fantastic. And you can only have nine units because that's all the, the GUI would allow you, allow you to select. But fantastic. Oh, love those games. 
So yeah, that's Open Red Alert. If you've got a Mac or a Linux box or a Windows PC and you fancy getting some old-time gaming in with a modern flavor, OpenRE might be a thing to look at. The second thing I want to... Go on, sorry. I think that should be my homework for next week to, to try out June, June 2000. Put it in the list then. My second bit of feedback is on a game that came out on Friday. It's called Marvel's Midnight Suns. This is obviously a, a Marvel property, but it's been made by Firaxis, the people who are responsible for Civilizations 4, 5, and 6, and the XCOM games. And this is, if you were to describe something that I'm going to insta-buy without having to think about it too hard, Firaxis, XCOM, and Marvel together, and I'm sold. And then I'm going to throw the, net, the last crucial component of this, Slay the Spire, because it's got some card-based stuff, mechanics, in the same way Slay the Spire does for the way that you play. So the tactical part of the combat involves card uh, c- card decks and collecting cards and upgrading them in the same similar way to Slay the Spire. Literally, I haven't had to think about it. It was bought. It was in my uh, library. I've played about five hours of it. I was completely addicted to it. The story is very good. The characters are well done. It's funny. The combat is excellent. It And it looks great. And including all that, it's meant to be Windows only. I fired up my Linux box, gave it a try, and it launched without problems on Steam through Proton. So I just think that's incredible. Day of release, I'm able to play it on Linux as well. So... What a phenomenal game. Thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, no disappointment so far. And uh, yeah, it ticks all my boxes. I don't know what to say. It seems like it's, you know, kind of like we did Red Alert for me. This is kind of just fully within your wheelhouse, I guess is the right word. So it sounds good. It's not for me, I don't think, because it's Marvel and Cards, which just for whatever reason isn't my jam. But um, I'm pleased for you. Well, no, if you like a bit of real-time strategy, which is what, you know, Red Alert is, and and really what these things are, you know, just zoomed in a little bit, you've got, you know, f- five superheroes instead of five tanks to control. Think of it like that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Fair point. Thank you. Last story is yours. Oh, very briefly, I just, for whatever reason, went on the PlayStation site today and thought, can you actually get a PS5? Clicked around and said, yeah, you can. You can have it delivered within two business days. And I thought, I thought it'd be said they were sold out because a few few of my friends at work wanted them. And I hadn't really appreciated how supply constrained they were. But then when I went and just looked and it just seemed like you could just go get it there and then. So that was what I was going to say. That's taken a long time to get to that point. Yeah, and I wonder how long they will be at that point for. I'm, I'm sure they're going to sell out again in five minutes. But I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, thankfully it's not Christmas or anything soon. So the, the supply chain's not going to get scores at all. No, but... I, I don't know, I hadn't really heard anything saying that the supply chain had, had got to the right place with them. I don't know, maybe everybody's buying an Xbox. Well, that was our advice. I'm sure all the thousands of people who listen to us are off there buying them now. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. That's what that's what changed it. You know, it's, it's our podcast. Wake from sleep broke the PlayStation this year. Don't buy one, buy an Xbox. Oh. Anyway, I think that'll do us for games, unless I've missed anything, and I think we can go to the main show. I've not played any real games this week. Unless you want to talk Gran Turismo. Oh, I can always talk Gran Turismo. I, I uninstalled it from my PlayStation. So, uh, yeah. So in our household, it's working really well. My son has a go. I have a go. Either we play, we help each other out on certain races or we watch each other in our own profiles. It's, it's quite, for me and him, it's a good way of us bonding over the, over the same game. I'm quite enjoying it. Fair enough. No, let's move on. Main show. So, you asked me a question last night on messages that I thought we could actually broaden into our main show this time. So tell me about your backup plan for your Mac, Chris. So I was in my garage. I've got a Synology in the garage. I've bought it a long time ago. I'm going to say 
10 years, maybe longer. So that's going to be my quest. first question is, what Synology? So I can put it in the show. Right. Black you, one. You, go on, you fire away and we'll come back to that. It takes four hard drives and I have put some bigger hard drives in it at some point. I, at the time I bought it, I used it for more things than I use it for now. So I was quite happy with that. But for whatever reason, over the years, used it less and less and less, probably as we've really gone to the cloud. So I'm obviously all in on my iPad. So I'm not really using Synology at all. I never really use their apps. My wife's got a MacBook. I've got a Mac Mini in the house, but barely use the thing to be honest. I have it just to download the photos, which does get backed up to Synology. So really I'm just using the Synology just as a time machine box, but it's only connected at 100 meg because it is quite an old one. As I said, I actually ordered it in 2013. So what's that, nine years ago? In February, yep. nearly 10. It's coming, coming up to its anniversary. And it is a DS413. So quite old, a four bay one. I remember buying it, like I say. So I thought, why have I got the Synology? It's slow to back up, which is its primary use. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, actually, why don't I just stick a big hard drive on my Mac mini, which is always on, and use that to back up my wife's computer over the network? Because you can run Time Machine Server on your Mac now. And I thought that'll just simplify my life a little bit and should be quicker with the throughput of the gigabit network card in the Mac and connecting this drive or an external drive through USB-C. So that's what I'm thinking of doing. And all I want to use it for is just some raw storage space, basically. So raw storage space for what? Sorry. You took, you're, just you're... for backups. Just raw storage for Time Machine. Just that's it. That's all I've got. There's no other files on this Synology. My wife's got everything on her Mac and it's all synced to iCloud. So she's got the desktop syncing turned on on, a, on, a, on her Mac. I don't really use my Mac for anything. And if I do, it's all in iCloud. Same with my iPads. The children don't have anything outside their iPads. We have no local storage. I'm, I'm bamboo. I'm bamboo. Your face is quizzical. I'm bamboozled by this. So I'm going to take one step back and see. So what Chris has got, and what I'll talk about that I've got in a minute, is called a NAS. It's a network attached storage device. So it's a box into which you chuck typically between two and four hard disks, sometimes up to as many as 10 hard disks, although that you tend to be more towards the enterprise of varying sizes, there is a certain amount of redundancy in them. So you can use them for a variety of tasks. The older ones are fairly dedicated towards just backup and a file space as much as anything else. But the idea being, if you've got four drives in it, if one goes bad, you can put another one in and you don't lose any of your data. So it's not backup, but it's a form of redundancy. And the idea is you should back that up as well. It's not a backup until it's in three places is the rule of these things. So. What Chris is saying is that he's only using his for Time Machine. Time Machine is a technology on Macs where it can incrementally archive what's going on in the machine. If you've only if you've got a couple of Macs, so in my household, for example, there are four Macs, three to four Macs, depending on when my daughter comes back from university. As soon as they're seen on the Wi-Fi network or they're plugged in, they find their backups from there, they'll do a, a diff between what was on there before, what was on there now, what files have changed, and Time Machine will do an incremental archive to those. So from that point of view, Chris and I were the same. He has a Synology. I have a now newer Synology, link to that in the show notes too, that sits on my network with four disks in it. And one of its, for me, one of its functions is a time machine backup of all the Macs. So all the data that's on there, if one of them died, I could restore from scratch the entire operating system. Well, that's not entirely true, is it? You need the base Mac operation, base Mac operating system installed to restore from a time machine backup. I think I've explained explainer in chief that enough. So Effectively, you just want to swap out your network attached thing to attach it to your wife's computer or your computer. Which What computer are you attaching it to? So attached to mine because it's the Mac Mini. Well, more the family Mac in essence because it's always on the network. And then my wife has a MacBook Air 
probably with only about two, five, six storage units. So she hasn't got a lot and it's just to back that up locally. We've never ever restored from a time machine backup, by the way. Right. It's probably why I'm a bit more cavalier. Yeah, I've I've had to do it a couple of times where I've gone back and found files or indeed the whole thing, you know, from, from weeks ago because something gets deleted off a desktop and you need to go looking for that final version of that file. So it, it's definitely a useful thing to have and I'd say to everybody, do do backups. You know, if you take nothing else away from this conversation, do backups. So, okay, let's stick with what you're doing at the moment. You will only back up the machines. What do you do with your photo storage then that all just lives in iCloud do it you don't have any local photo backup everything's in iCloud and then so they download to my Mac and then my Mac backs up to my Synology that just gives me the screaming heebie-jeebie so I gotta say you know just because you want an entirely unappled version of your photo library or certainly you want to back it up at the highest possible quality to your local device in some way shape manner or form in case it goes wrong as we've talked about last week Apple are potentially showing your photographs to somebody else when they install a Windows drive, a Windows client. So the, 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 the sanctity of the photographs that you're cavalierly uploading to iCloud all the time is fine. I would trust iCloud. I do trust iCloud. But I also periodically grab the whole bloody lot and stick it on my Synology as well. Yeah, I haven't done that. So that's that would be one thing I'd say that might be you might want to think about in terms of if you're just going to put this on a disk attached to a computer it's not really backed up and all you're doing is as you said you're only storing the time machine backups of of those machines so for those other things that are out there and you said you have a lot of movies you might want to think about archiving them at some point as well they're all on itunes sure but in the same way i talked about audible last time if apple moved the goalposts a little a little bit you don't have a movie collection anymore yeah, or a thousand pounds or whatever the number is that I've, I've spent on it over the years. Yeah, and as we're talking about with fair use, that you know, if uh, was it Amazon? No, it was Sony that decided to say actually you don't own this anymore. So there is the the potential that your photograph library could do go your, your and your movie library could go. Now I presume the movie library is a lot harder to deal with because of the DRM and things that are on it anyway. So it might not even be an issue. But, yeah, no, exactly that. The, the movie's all DRM. The, obviously, the photos are all mine, and it's photos of the family, basically, for the last 20-odd years. Yeah, but that would be a lot to lose if it, if it went horribly wrong. So I think you should be backing that up, no matter what, frankly. I think it'd be very hard to explain to my wife that, uh, oops, I've just lost all of our photos yeah. since forever, especially as we, if we merge into one shared photo library that you can now do with iOS 16. Yeah, so I, I think the... I like the fact you're living the dream and you're not having to worry about this kind of stuff, but I'd, in the back of my head of a bit of a concern about putting all my eggs in one basket with that thing. I would want, even if it was a year out of date, you're not losing that many photographs, but I would want some sort of archive of the bigger thing. So for me, I do that. I back up for Time Machine. I, I All my DVDs and Blu-rays that I own, I also archived onto my, my NAS. So I have all my movies on there and I have all the music I ripped off CDs years and years and years ago too, as well as things like my Audible books. So for me, the NAS is, I upgraded my NAS. I also had a DS412 is the one I think I had, which is, so that is to to come to terms with Synology's nomenclature. DS is disk station. Four is the number of disks in it. It would be two. You get DS2s as well. And 13 is the year it was released. They've changed it, but this is the way it used to be. So this is a disk station with four disks from 2013. 
is the one that you had. And mine was a disc station with four discs from 2012, which I replaced just at the outbreak of the, of the pandemic because mine wasn't doing it for me either. It was 100 meg that was USB 1 drives in it for when you were doing backups and things like that. Throughput was very slow and it was just getting, it was still working fine, don't get me wrong, but I wanted to replace it. So I replaced mine with a DS920 Plus, which is also a four, four disc thing from 2020, unsurprisingly. I have 15.7 terabytes of, of usable storage in there, spread over a variety of disks. You can also add SSDs to it. So I've put an SSD in, a 512 gig SSD, so it's got cache, so it can sit there and write files very quickly. And that disk is then archived once a week onto an external USB disk. So I plug an external 18 terabyte disk into it. It backs up the whole thing. It sits there for a week and then I swap it and move that backup disk to another part of the house. <laughs> you look bored was, already. <laughs> the problem I've got is I've just got no interest in any of it. I just don't want to deal with it. The thing is, I don't need to do a lot. I've I've got a share, an SMB drive or, a, or a, an NFS drive, depending on the machines that are connecting to it. Or it can sit in the beloved files app on your iPad as an SMB drive as well. Yeah, because you can connect to one directly in there. And I've got every file I ever want anywhere, whenever I want it. Everything, everywhere, all at once for the second time tonight. So when I am or when I'm in Italy and I connect to my VPN, I've got access to my NAS. I can find that file. I can back something up. I can do whatever I want with that. You know, my, all my films are there. All my music is there. All our photographs are there. The time machine backups are there. If I want to chuck something across, if I need a bit of file storage, if I want to share a large file with someone else without it going through Google Drive, I can do it. And the interface is very straightforward. Is the, is the point. Yeah, I need to swap a USB disk every week from one to another or take one out and put another one in. But that's it. That's the extent of my my maintenance for the thing. It updates itself. It's not a big deal. I think you lost me. I get what you're doing. I understand why you're doing it. And I don't know why I'm blasé about it because I've worked in IT for 20 years and we've all had data loss and we've had to deal with it. But I don't know. I guess I'm just living the cloud lifestyle and just not worrying about it. I should probably, I think we're going to talk about it, pay free service at some point and actually outsource the problem. That's probably where I'm getting to in life. And I was talking to you just last week. I think it was about opening my Mac up for my children to start using it. And maybe then they will start making files that I do care about. But I don't know why. I'm just very comfortable with it because I don't really have that many files that I could lose because most of my stuff I can re download. I would have a problem, obviously, if Apple's iCloud photo library got attacked and all my photos got deleted from there. That's probably the one thing I can live without. If my films went, I'd be annoyed. I'd be very gutted. I could just buy them again or stream them again. It wouldn't be the end of the world. But the photos are probably the one thing I can't replace. And then documents I keep in iCloud, very few. Like I've got my CV in there that I haven't touched in 10 years. And if I could make it again, I'd just go on LinkedIn <laughs> and basically print LinkedIn onto some sides of A4. Job done. So that's probably why I'm very relaxed because I just don't have that much stuff that's mission critical in my life I guess fair enough it's horses for courses isn't it but I think it's 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 good that we've described our sort of approaches to these things as much as anything else and and just to be complete as you've said I think you can make your life easier by having some of these services that you pay for as well so the first level of this is what you've discussed really whereas you pay for iCloud storage or you pay for Google Drive storage or you pay for Dropbox or a service like that which will be an amount of money per month. I, f what is? I mean, I pay. What do I? What do I pay? Is it forty-two pounds? The Apple Plus thing is now thirty-two something. Thirty-two ninety-five, I think, for Apple. 
3295, which gives me two terabytes of storage for the family account. So, you know, which is plenty. We don't use anything close to that because I've got other methods of storage, possibly. But certainly the photographs go in there, the device backups go in there, you know, text messaging, conversation, all that kind of stuff goes into that backup. So I've got that too. I just archive out of it every so often. So I've got my own copies of these things, you know, from time to time. I think that's good. I think if you, in the very unlikely event you're an Android person and you listen to this, you should be paying for Google Drive. You should have those additional photographs. You should be trusting them to do, the, do these kinds of storage. And again, doing an archive. Google actually are very, very good at going download everything I've got. And you can have it in a folder, be it your messages, be it your locations and maps, be it your photographs, your music, whatever it is. You can archive all of Google off, you know, whenever you want to do it. They make it very straightforward to do so. All your Gmail messages, all those kinds of things. So I think it's important that you do have some level of backup. And these cloud additions to services give you a certain amount of backup within that. It gives me hebes people that just have their photographs on their phone and don't pay for iClouds. Because when the phone goes, the photo goes. And and that's just I, madness. I agree with you there, especially if the phone gets stolen, lost, whatever. I remember we had people at work and we were upgrading. We were upgrading a model of phone, and so oh no, you you can't take my my your company phone off me. It's got photos of my newly born child, and I was like, why are you using your company phone? Oh, I never upgraded my own one, so I just used the work one because I had a better camera. And it was just like, whoa, um, I do I do get it. I just guess I've just got relaxed by it because I've never been burnt. Maybe if I'd been burnt, we'd be having a different conversation right now. I'm amazed you haven't been burnt with all the betas you've installed because if anything's going to screw up your iCloud backups and things like that, it's having beta OSs installed. Yeah, that's fair. And I install them on my primary iCloud thing. Never really been a problem. So, so much um, to go wrong. Agreed. When you take a, a copy of all your photos, do you just copy the iPhoto li- or the photos library folder or do you actually export them all out as JPEGs? I export them all out. And the highest co- possible quality thing that I can. So do you have? What do you, how does that work? I'll, do we'll, that I'll, run, I'll run you through that another time. I won't. I won't, I won't okay. go through that tonight. It's suffice it to say I do. And when I was more in the Google Photo Library, I used to do. I would do that periodically as well, just to make sure all these things were synced. Because photo libraries are a massive pain in the arse, frankly. You know, you decide what's the canonical thing, and you go forward. So no, no matter what, at least you've got a method. Your your method is I trust Apple to do everything to my my photographs, which is fine. As, until the point that it breaks. But, you know, I, I do understand at least you've got one level of backup in place. It breaks or whether they get hacked, I think they're the, the two things that I'm concerned about. Yeah, yeah. So it's a thought anyway, isn't it? And, you know, who's to say who's right? I mean, just because I do all this backup and stuff doesn't mean it's right. It just it gives me a, a slightly warmer, a, a false sense of security is probably what it gives me. You know, one thing gets onto your, your home NAS and creates a worm that goes everywhere and it's in your backups and then you lose everything as well. So you've just... What I said at the outset is still true. It's not backed up till it's backed up in three places. And then I think that leads nicely into the sort of next service along, which is a service such as Backblaze or Crash Plan or Carbonite. None of these companies are sponsoring us. Nobody ever sponsors us, so I feel quite safe in, in, in saying these things, which are dedicated services designed to back up computers. Typically one computer, although you can find plans, plans to pay, pay for more. So for example, I could pay a lot of money and back up my NAS to crash plan or backblaze or carbonite but then i'm on one of the business plans considering the amount of data i've got so my 18 sorry my 15.7 terabytes isn't 15.7 terabytes i think i'm only using about five terabytes of that currently so i've got plenty of space to grow but they would charge me an awful lot to back up my five terabytes of data so but the purposes of these things are if you 
Well, even if you do have something like a NAS, you can run a little agent on your machine that will give you entire disk backup to a service like Backblaze. And Backblaze are an interesting company. Backing up data is relatively quick. Restoring it is slow because they all use things like Amazon Web Services, Glacier Service at the back end. And getting data out is more expensive than putting it in. So Backblaze will actually post you a disk a USB disk or a, an internal disk for your device with your most recent backup on it to do a restore if it's urgent that you have it. So so I think that's quite a nice way of going. The services cost about 90 quid a year to give you these sort of online storage spaces, which is actually slightly cheaper than paying for iCloud or something like that on an ongoing basis. Um, and I just recommend if you are worried about the files and you know if you, if you don't have Chris's mode of working where you do have files that you keep on your own machine somewhere that are really important to you, I thoroughly recommend you use one of these services in some way, shape, or form. So you've got a, a version on your computer and you've got a version backed up somewhere. And if you can afford it, version backs up somewhere else again too, just in case that service becomes problematic. I, I was going to go on and list some other ones that were that are sort of quite well known, but Backblaze, Crash, Crash Pad and Carbonite have been around a long time, so I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. And that's something you've got to think about as well. If you chuck all your precious data into one of these providers and the provider goes under, you'll lose your data. So you want somebody who's reputable who's been on the market. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Actually, Carbonite, I've got a sale on, 40% off. So it's very cheap. Their website is horrible. It just does not work for me aesthetically. Backblaze is probably the one I've heard of the most because they, they sponsor a lot of podcasts in this space. And if you pay annually, it's $70 a, a year. But if you go monthly, it's seven. So it seems reasonable. And then there's CrashPan as well. They, CrashPan do have one for small businesses. So you could do one or two users if, if I was going to do my wife and, and mine. So I, I think they are good. And and I did start doing this a long time ago, but my internet was so slow. I, I, the upload would never finish kind of thing was where I ended up with it. Whereas actually now I've, I've got very good internet and, and whilst my upload isn't as quick as my download, it's certainly a lot more feasible for me to have this. So so maybe I need to consider this as, as my ultimate backup plan. I think so. And maybe just grab your photo library every so often and bang it on your hard drive as well. And even that would be progress. <laughs> It would be better than where I am today. Fair point. <laughs> Thank you. Good. Okay. Anything else on backup? No, I don't think so. I have ordered a... So I did order in the end a six terabyte hard drive for less than £300. I did have to do a bit of hunting around on Amazon to get the newer model. I thought, well, I don't want to buy one that's already out of date on the latest one. So I found that. And I thought, actually, the money for six terabytes wasn't too bad. It's enclosure. It's USB-C. There's 20 gigabytes per second. I thought, that all sounds good. I'll just do that because that just seemed a simple option it didn't require much thought and or effort so that's what i'm going with in the short term i'll happily retire my synology at this point yeah yeah you should be retiring that synology it's an old thing i'm just looking at this is this an ssd or is this a spinning disc no it's a spinning disc i just don't think i really need the performance if i'm really honest because once it's done the major backup the diffs will be very small Diffs being differentials yeah fair enough are you sure? The link you sent me in the show notes for the SanDisk, it says SSD at the bottom. Maybe maybe it is. I think it's an SSD. Yeah. Shows how carefully I looked at it. I literally just looked, normally in the olden days, I'd have spent ages pouring over it. And in the end, I just ordered one straight away. Well, the model up, the 12 terabyte one is £450 for a 12 terabyte SSD. That seems very good. I've no idea what SSDs cost, if I'm honest. Yeah, they're they're that's that's really good for an SSD. A twenty-two terabyte one is seven hundred and seventy-six. That seems extremely good, actually. So it makes me think it's running an older class of SSD inside of it. Yeah, it's five gigabits. It's limited to the USB. No, that's not USB C is faster than that. But no, yeah. it, it's 
the, the moral of the story is backups are good. Multiple backups are better. And backups that exist in three different places are even better again. So back up your stuff, people. Yes, good. Boss. Good. Okay, moving on. I'm going to do my app of the week and I'm going to apologize for last week's app of the week because almost immediately after I said it, the developer of Metatext that I was talking about said that he was going to stop developing Metatext due to health problems and commitments. He couldn't continue to develop it. So he's not going to update it to the next version of Mastodon, the version 3 version of Mastodon. So I'm not recanting it. It still works perfectly well in the way that it does, but you might want to consider something else. And one of the things you might want to consider is called Toot with an exclamation mark that's available in the App Store. I think it was £3.49. It does all the things that X does. It's a perfectly good Mastodon client. But the one that caught my attention, I think I mentioned that the guy that developed Poulter from Tapbots uh, was now on Mastodon and he's develop, developing Ivory. Not sure about the name, which will be TweetDeck, but for Mastodon. So it's really good that these things are going. It's currently on a public alpha. No, not public alpha, a private alpha. Some of uh, people like uh, Syracuse and Casey Liss and Mark Roman and others have had access to it and are loving it. They say it's great. It's really the thing that sort of pushed them over into Mastodon as being an acceptable replacement for Twitter. So I think it's great that there's development in this space and you've got big name developers like Tapbots that are coming along and going to sort of improve the quality of the clients. Bit of a shame for Metatext though. Yeah, the curse of Rod, hey? It's a shame. Ivory, yeah, I'm like kind of with you, I think, on the name. But then, yeah, if somebody can just make a Mastodon app that works just like the, their Twitter app in essence and you just swapped out the underneath that's probably going to land really well and massively help with adoption so quite a clever idea i think and why wouldn't you get on that train i still haven't s signed up to Mastodon yet maybe i will but like i said i'm trying to get off one more social media at this point it's not a requirement it's not for everyone i i it's certainly not as busy as twitter if you're you are hoping for that garbage fire town town square it's not that it's a lot more thoughtful as i said last week I'm still quite liking it. I just drop in a couple of times a day and see what's going on with it. And I do follow, you know, people like Tapbots on there to see what's going on with the development of the platform and what's going on. So it has a very early days of Twitter feel about it. And I'm quite enjoying that. Yeah, and I guess that's the thing that I'm interested in is if it's a bit like Twitter in the early days, which I missed, maybe maybe I would enjoy it. Maybe, maybe I should check it out. But I don't know. I think you might. Anyway, I think we can call that a show, Chris. Yeah, I think we're there. Nice one. Thank you, Rod. Thank you. And if anybody wants to get in contact with us, drop us an email at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com or still on Twitter, but maybe we set up a Mastodon at the underscore podcast. Talk to you next week. Cheers, Rod. Bye.